Hello, and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. This episode, Forbidden Brides of the Faceless Slaves in the Secret House of the Night of Dread Desire, <laughs> originally published in 2004's Gothic. Yeah, originally published in this uh, this anthology, Gothic, in 2004, but per the introduction, and, and this is something that you brought to the table when we uh, encountered this story in The Sandman, uh, or this phrase anyway, in The Sandman, this is a much older story than that. This was a, a trunk story that Gaiman had well, lying around. That's what a trunk story is, uh, though revised at that point, and uh, maybe that's something we'll talk about at the end. Uh, and I say introduction, and uh, I mean the introduction to the collection Fragile Things, which is where we read this. Before we get into the story, though, we do want to take a minute here to let you know about a new goal that we have on Patreon. Uh, We took a poll among our current Patreon supporters to decide which major Lovecraft work uh, Brandon, who's my co-host on Elder Sign, uh, which major Lovecraft work Brandon and I should cover on an extended Patreon-exclusive series. And this was in part motivated by the fact that the three of us, Brent, Brandon, and I, uh, have visited Lovecraft's fictional town of Innsmouth for this podcast uh, when we've done Gaiman's story Only the End of the World Again. And I'm using the past tense because we've already recorded it, even though we haven't aired it yet. That's actually going to be the episode that comes out after this one. Uh, But then right after we recorded that, Brandon and I did two episodes on Elder Sign uh, about Caitlin R. Kiernan's Innsmouth-related story, Houses Under the Sea. And so we thought, maybe we should do The Shadow over Innsmouth at some point. Uh, But it turns out we're not going to. Or at least we're not doing it right away because the Patreon supporters have spoken and what they want us to do is at the Mountains of Madness. So we'll do that over the course of several episodes. That's going to be our next Patreon goal. So at the time of recording this, we're really only a few new supporters away from hitting that goal. And actually, what that means is that by the time you're listening to this, we've probably reached that goal. So really, what we're saying is, if you're interested in hearing those episodes, if if that is something that would compel you to buy the four of us a cup of coffee to share each month, it is probably already up on Patreon. So you can join us and get access to that bonus series right away. It's certainly something I'm really excited to get to do. So I hope we get to. I'm really looking forward to hearing you and Brandon talk about At the Mountains of Madness, so I really hope that we hit that goal, because while not my favorite Lovecraft story, it's definitely up there, Uh, and there's definitely, I think, a lot of stuff that can be dug into there, and a lot of rich veins to to mine, uh, if you will. Yeah, At the Mountains of Madness is a a novel. It's really one of the two... Uh, maybe two and a half novels that Lovecraft wrote. The half there is the the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, which uh, just has all sorts of caveats attached to it. Although that's one I'd be really excited to do. But At the Mountains of Madness tends to be fairly polarizing among Lovecraft fans. So I was actually surprised that it won. I think there are people who who really love it, and there are people who find it to be the most boring thing that there's ever been. But I'm I'm in the Lovett camp. So I'm going to be really excited to talk about it. I have not read At the Mountains of Madness uh, since I've gone to grad school, since before I've gone to grad school. And so now that I have gone to grad school for being an academic, uh, I will be excited to read the Antarctic adventures of a bunch of uh, nerds, you know, a bunch of nerdy academics. I think that will be a lot of fun. Uh, Also a lot of fun, though, is this story that we're here to talk about today. 
And we decided to do this story because the title of it appeared in the appeared in the issue Into the Night that we did a few months ago, uh, and we talked for a long time actually about that phrase. And you had done your homework at the time, Brent, but I just didn't remember this story, even though I have had Fragile Things since the moment it came out, and have know that I've read it cover to cover. So I was really excited to revisit this one, and I'm glad that we did. I really enjoyed this story. And I enjoyed it more the second time. The first time I read it, I was not really in the mood for it. But I think it's best to talk about that after we walk through the story itself. But uh, I I enjoyed it a lot more the second time that I've read it uh, recently. Uh, I don't remember what I thought of it when I first read it back when Fragile Things came out. I must have read it, you know, a decade ago or more. But um, I don't don't really recall that. But I remember picking it up and reading it hurriedly. Um, in preparation for our um, Into the Night commentary, and um, I was not enjoying it as much. I think I was more by the end, but uh, but this time uh, I reread it for preparation for this podcast, and I enjoyed it a lot more throughout. Well, I think mood is the, the, the word to emphasize there, because this is a moody piece, and you know any piece that is moody, any piece that is about the mood and the atmosphere, if you're not there, if you're not in that mood or, or can't get in that mood, like if you're not adjacent enough to that mood to, to be drawn there by the story, then it's it's not going to work. And and maybe we should start by talking about even just the, the structure of this story. It was like Gaiman has very nicely divided this story into numbered sections. Uh, there's nine of them. This is something I always appreciate because it makes podcast discussions a lot <laughs> easier because we could just recap each section and then talk about each section and then do the next one. Uh, that is a lot of fun. That makes it very easy for us to do our jobs. Uh, but there is more going on with the structure here than just that, uh, because Gaiman is also playing with the font. Some of the sections are in a, a regular font. I mean, whatever the, the font of fragile things is. I actually couldn't find that on the copyright page, but I was interested because I think it looks very nice. Uh, but then some of the sections are in bold. We'll talk about why and uh, what's going on with that. We'll do that in just a, a moment. But I just want to say at the top here that I really liked this as a visual device. I especially liked the decision to use bold instead of italics because I hate italics. And the first section here is in the regular font, but then underneath the Roman numeral one is just one sentence. Somewhere in the night, someone was writing. And then we just go straight to Roman numeral two, which is several pages in this bold font. So even without getting into the content of section two, we just immediately infer that the bold text is going to be whatever this someone somewhere in the night is is writing. This is really great visual storytelling in what is a prose piece, right? This is Gaiman using visual media here. It's something that doesn't necessarily require it. Uh, it really worked for me. I really enjoyed it too. Um, and I don't know if it was Gaiman's idea or the editor or, you know, typesetter or whoever, but, but yes, it's, it's excellent. And I'm glad that they did not use italics as well. Um, I think oftentimes when we do want to convey that something is the thing that is being written, italics look a little bit more like script. And so people oftentimes default to thinking that that's the way to go. But particularly when there's a lot of dense text, it, it's just harder to read and it, I think you may layer a tone on that in a way that you don't want to layer. Although I think with bold, you do as well. And I think actually having a bold, direct, kind of powerful looking text suits 
the story elements that are going on in the uh, even Roman numerals. And I think, Glenn, for simplicity's sake, um, because we're talking about a short story, and so we might use the word story a lot, let's refer to them as story A and story B. Story A being the normal typeset that is the uh, odd Roman numerals and story B being the even Roman numerals. And that way, if we we mention the story, then hopefully it will be clear as to which story. If we mean the meta story versus you know, which character. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a fantastic idea. So let, let's get into the bold type story, right? Which is story B. And then this is section two. And this is, uh, this is where the mood comes in, right? This is a thick, moody, gothic piece. It begins in the middle of the night. There's a young woman. She's running as if the legions of hell are after her. There's a house ahead with a single light burning on the topmost floor And when she gets there, she pounds on the door, and it seems to take forever for someone to answer. And the man who does answer the door doesn't actually open it, but in fact, what he does is question her from his side of the door. Uh, And his voice sounds like crackling parchment and musty grave hangings. That is a simile that I just adore. (laughs) But the, the deal is this. She is Amelia Earnshaw, and she's come to this part of England to take up a position as the governess to the children of Lord Falconmere. Moreover, she is the orphan daughter of the Honorable Hubert Earnshaw, who drowned trying to save her mother in a tragic boating accident. And this fact means that this house is hers. It's her inheritance, though apparently she never knew anything about that. And this is just a crazy coincidence that starts off this story. And so the old man lets her in, and uh, he looks like a jack-o'-lantern or a particularly elderly axe murderer, just another brilliant phrase there. (laughs) And he leads her down a long corridor to a door to the basement, which he unlocks with a a massive jangly keychain, and then ominously says, there are some as are what they are, and there are some as aren't what they seem to be, and there are some as only seem to be what they seem to be. Whatever that means, right? Uh, And they begin to head downstairs where it smells of must and dust and abandonment. But then this section of story B ends here. So we're going to have to wait to find out what is in the basement. But uh, I think we do need here, Brent, to talk about, right, the tone, the mood of this bold font story here of story B. Yeah, I think we do. Um, But I just want to add where you stopped reading there. I I like that it continues. Mark my words and mark them well. Hubert Earnshaw's daughter. Do you understand me? And at this point, I don't understand him. I I don't know why she would understand him. I don't know why anyone would understand him. It seems like nonsense. But yes, I mean, it's it's all over the top, kind of melodramatic prose in a very, uh, it's a lot of tropes of kind of gothic literature going on here, right? And a lot of that era of weird fiction. It's almost more atmosphere than it even is plot. You know, we have bits in which she, you know, the coachman shoes her away, but we're getting more out of even chewing up all of the scenery so much so that we're tasting it. And I, I like the fact that throughout there are many ways in which people are described to be like scenery and scenery is described in a way or, you know, things within the scene as if they're alive. Um, and I think that that's just because the whole thing is just kind of a very deliberately placed, you know, set of, you know, stage props in some way, but it works. It works for me to think that velvet has a noise, (laughs) um, which we come to later. And, um, and the voice sounding like crackling parchment. I mean, that's just you and I, and the listener likely immediately know what that might sound like, even though that 
parchment doesn't crackle unto itself. There needs to be some kind of action performed on it for that to be occurring, right? Um, or it needs to be in a fire or something. So it's, but it, it's, it's great. Um, but it's over the top. But admittedly, the first time I read this, I just thought it was really bad writing, which I think it's kind of maybe supposed to be. Yeah, I think that is the idea. And I think we should talk about whether or not it is bad writing, but but we'll get a little bit more under our belt before we, we have that conversation. But yeah, you, you've hit the nail on the head here, Brent, right? This is, I mean, it's a pastiche. We, we should probably say that up front, right? What Gaiman is doing is writing a gothic tale in the tradition of 19th century Gothic writing. Uh, this is Edward Bulwer-Lytton is all over this. He's the, I don't know if he's famous anymore, but infamous. He's the, it was a dark and stormy night, which is, uh, you know, an iconic opening sentence, but is held up as being an example of poor writing of the sort of purple prose that this genre was known for, and especially the sort of mediocre versions of this genre. Uh, here we don't get, it was a dark and stormy night, but we do get repeatedly the phrase, this night of all nights. And, you know, we do have the character Amelia here pointing that out, saying, why do you keep saying that phrase? You've said it three times. What do you what do you mean by it? Which is also a great nod to The Hobbit. This is uh, something Gandalf actually says to Bilbo about his frequent use of the phrase good morning to mean several different things. And, you know, Gaiman has nailed it. That's the thing, right? Is that he is doing a great job of mimicking this voice. And so I found it to be really fun, but he's also got the plot too. And in fact, I actually want to read another passage here. This is uh, when Amelia announces who she is. I'll just read this. Tis I, Amelia Earnshaw, recently orphaned and now on my way to take up a position as a governess to the two small children, a boy and a girl of Lord Falconmere, whose cruel glances I found during our interview in his London residence, both repellent and fascinating but his aquiline face haunts my dreams. And yeah, this is this is not great writing. It's not great storytelling, for sure, to put all this backstory in, like, this character monologue. Like, it's a stage play, and, you know, that the audience can only know things that characters are saying. But also, this setup is straight out of Jane Eyre or Vanity Fair. It's actually kind of a, a hodgepodge of the, the, the two of them, where this idea of a young, well-educated woman going to take up a job as a governess and, of course, is going to become romantically involved with the father of these kids who's got to be a widower, or is he really a widower, right? There's some mystery around where is the wife, what happened to the wife, and is the place haunted, and so on. And and Gaiman is just nailing it. It's it's amazing. I also like that intentionally when he's writing, he's throwing in Ten dollar words where a fifty cent word, you know, word would do, and so it's just it, it's great to see. It, it, it's a writer who is very consciously trying to write something gra- that will grab you and that's gripping, um, and it it kind of strains from that in terms of not Neil Gaiman writing, but in terms of the writer in story A writing the story in story B. Well, should we get back to the A story now? Yeah. So then back to the A story. Young man slams down his quill upon the manuscript and spatters ink across uh, the ream of paper. And then there's a humorous little bit with um, as the rest proceeds and he ends up talking with his butler. The ink continues to get increasingly on his face and clothes, which I just (laughs) I love the image of that. It's a very it's slapstick. A lot of this is just 
It's great slapstick. I'm imagining that Groucho Marx is portraying this role at this point in which he's complained to his butler, though, whose name um, I'm pronouncing as Tombs. Oh, yeah. His name is definitely Tombs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He has has to be named Tombs. I mean, he could be called Gravestone, but uh, Tombs. And and he explains to Tombs that he's he's unhappy because... Humor creeps in. Self-parody whispers at the edges of things. I find myself guying literary convention and sending up both up both myself and the whole scrivening profession. And he explains he's trying to tell a real story about, um, as he puts it, I'm trying to create a slice of life here, an accurate representation of the world as it is and of the human condition. Instead, I find myself indulging as I write in schoolboy parody of the foibles of my fellows. I make little jokes. He had smeared ink all over his face. Very little. Which is funny because it's just. It, it, it's it's humor upon humor because we are seeing him, you know, from the third person perspective of having ink on his face in which that's funny. It's only kind of funny, but also then the layer of making fun of that. But it's also just him saying, you know, that that he's this is reality. His story be that he is trying to convey with this over the top um, gothic pastiche is what he thinks reality is and what he and his fellow schoolboys have normally experienced as they go through life when they have butlers named tombs. Right. And we're going to get more on this eventually, right? There's a game is working a joke here, but at this point in the story, that's what it seems. It seems like, yep, the A story is our world. And this guy, for some reason, thinks that, that the stories that you would read in uh, Penny Dreadful are what the world is really like. And so that seems to be what the joke is. But Gaiman is going to flip that on its head for us uh, before too long. So in addition to the butler tombs, we also hear um, a cry from elsewhere in the house um, in which it's revealed that Aunt Agatha is somewhere locked up and needs to be fed. Also, there behind um, the writer is a portrait that has its eyes cut out and something with gold eyes is staring out at him, but he doesn't see it. And it's just the, all these great little throwaway details of what is going on around him, which, again... If he's trying to ca- capture in his in the story B what is the actual slice of life, he is kind of capturing it very well. Um, maybe layering in some extra little jokes, but maybe not, because in many ways, I actually found what's going on in story A to be funnier than what's going on in story B. Yes, well, it is written with a funny tone, and this is, I think, one of the masterpiece things that Gaiman does here. It's a, it's a thing that I could only ever dream about being able to do as a, a writer, is to take seriously the joke and then jokeify the serious bit, and to write two stories that actually have a lot of the same DNA, but write them with totally different moods, or totally different tones anyway, if not totally different moods. And I think that works brilliantly. This whole business with Aunt Agatha letting out an eerie cry from upstairs in the, the forbidden room, uh, this is straight out of Jane Eyre, right? This is the, the woman locked in a forbidden room. I don't know about the eyes being cut out of the portrait. We've all seen this in Scooby-Doo, but I don't know that I've encountered this really anywhere other than Scooby-Doo or a pastiche of Scooby-Doo. I wasn't sure if that was from some 19th century novel that I, I just don't know or, or don't remember that bit. Do you, are, are you aware of anything where that really happens, Brent? I, I'm not. I'm only used to seeing it in yeah, Scooby-Doo or Murder, She Wrote. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> you know, classic television is really where I'm used to seeing that. Um, or, you know, maybe some old, 
uh, like black and white monster movies. I feel like I might have seen the image of the, the whole eyes following you from the painting kind of thing, which is it's always the ominous foreshadowing and to cue in the audience that there is something, you know, staring at you from behind the walls. The fact that the eyes are gold um, is interesting to me just because or they're glinted a tawny gold rather. They may not be gold themselves, but um I don't know if that implies they're like cat's eyes or something supernatural here or, you know, even some kind of Lovecraftian horror. Um, or if it's just the way that the, you know, flame from a candle is catching them or the fire that's uh, that the chambermaid has just kind of stoked further. Yeah, I think we're definitely meant to infer that it is something that is not quite human or at least not quite human anymore there is one other illusion that Gaiman is making here this the this business with the writer attempting to write this realism but the jokes keep coming in this is a, a nod to an occult detective story by Algernon Blackwood uh, this is a story in which John Silence who's a, a precursor to John Constantine we've we've met uh, is called in to help a writer of uh, light-hearted humorous novels but he suddenly can only write Write bitter and, and even horrific stories because uh, his house is haunted. There's a ghost in the house. And so John Silence has been called in to, to fix this problem for him. Uh, this is a story that Brandon and I have covered over on Elder Sign. Uh, it is called A Psychical Invasion. It's a story that, that both of us really loved. I think I loved it more than Brandon did, but I really, really loved it. And there's some dense 19th century prose there too, although I think it's technically really the first decade of the 20th century, but but some, some dense uh, Edwardian, if not Victorian prose in that story. I think Blackwood is a, a beautiful writer, but he has been accused of being uh, both loquacious and purple from time to time as well. And Gaiman has kind of nailed that idea here, which I, I, I quite enjoyed. So going back to um, story B, as he resumes his writing, the servant is escorting Amelia um, with his black towel candle. And there's discussion about a lock that's been locked since her ancestor's time. Um, and also that there is some master that the um, servant are the slaves to. Um, and there's a lot of kind of confusion. I feel like there was a, there's a bit of di- expositionary dialogue that has been cut out in while we were way at story A and story B. He's just decided to either skip over that or it's not important or maybe he'll fill in the details later in the way that sometimes when you're writing something, it's just like, no, no, let me get down some of the set pieces and then I'll backfill what I, what I need to. Um, which is, I think, harder to do probably with a quill than it is with a modern <laughs> uh, computer. But uh, Yeah, I don't know how people actually wrote stories without computers. But, you know, some real masterpieces were written before the, before the 1960s, so it is, uh, it is possible. But yeah, we've, I think we've jumped ahead a little bit. My sense of this was definitely that we were coming in at the end of the mysterious old man's explanation to Emilia about what is going on around here. And as you say, we, you know, even though we don't get the explanation, I think we get some clues so we can piece it together a little bit. There is this undead creature, some kind of undead creature anyway, that lives in the burial ground and, and has lived in the burial ground for a long time. It's the master here. Everyone else is its slave. Uh, though I like he adds this detail that they they try to pretend otherwise, but at some regular interval that is unknown to us, this creature, whatever it is, has a demand, and that demand must be met. And even though efforts have been made to keep the creature away, it doesn't matter because there are tunnels that link the old crypt with the burial ground. And so there's just nothing to be done, which is just 
an awesome setup. And Amelia asks what she should do about this. I guess she's kind of forgotten this whole, like, going to be the governess to Lord Falconmere uh, thing and is just, like, now the, you know, the owner of this house. But the old man just tells her to run away while she can. And there's a, a gag here where he's in the middle of saying something and then trails off with, ah, it's it's uh, it's her immortal, ah. And, right, the deal is that he's been killed in the middle of his speech and this is a gag just straight out of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, right? And it turns out that, you know, what's killed him is a crossbow bolt to the back of the head. This was fired by uh, a dude who claims that the old man was already dead l- a long time ago, in fact. And when Emilia, I don't know, let's say investigates his body, she sees that, yep, this is true and estimates that he's been dead for a hundred years. And, and Gaiman cuts this scene off here. I mean, just sort of leaves us wondering who this crossbow wielding man is and why dead men are serving as butlers tonight. And I know Gaiman is poking fun at these tropes and the heavy handed narration, which I think you have not enjoyed maybe that much, Brent, but I love this story. At this point here, I love story B. I actually wish that we had this as a complete novel, not like a 500 page novel, but like a 200 page novel. I I would read this for 200 pages and enjoy every freaking paragraph of it. But I don't know that that's how you're feeling at this point in the story. I actually, by this point, I think I was both times I read it. I think I started liking it a little bit more at this point. The first time, because I, you know, of recent times I've read it. The first of the more recent times I read it, I had a better sense as to the rhythm of things. Also, I had a better sense as to kind of who the major players are that, you know, Amelia is going to be encountering people and the encounters may be relevant, but maybe not. Uh, But I don't need to be attached to anyone in the story other than her. And then in story A, then it's just what's going on with with the with the Scrivener, with the writer. And I think immediately anytime someone mentions the detail that a crossbow quarrel is also silver, a silver crossbow Mm -hmm. quarrel, immediately my Dungeons and Dragons playing self is just like, okay, so that would be effective against these monsters. So that, that helps it along. I also did really like the joke about your mortal ah. And what, what's interesting about the ah is first of all, that her immediate response is my what? (laughs) (laughs) which as you said i mean it's a very monty python joke but additionally there's not an exclamation point in your immortal awe so it's just like he gets shot and then he just kind of stops but he exclaims but he doesn't actually exclaim he just says my immortal awe as opposed to like how i feel i would react if i felt like i was just shot (laughs) although he was shot in the back of the head so uh, who knows? But um, but yes, and then he becomes just a pile of ooze. And so I, I think at this point I was a lot more in tune with what the story wanted the first time. So I was starting to relax a little bit and kind of, I think, more roll with it rather than try to make sense of any of it. I think initially when as I was reading it, I was trying to make sense of it. And that's a mistake. Instead, it's just, it's like a roller coaster going through a weird collage of different parts of an amusement park where it's just like, wait, why, what does the killer clown have to do with the (laughs) Splash Mountain? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Just enjoy the fact of the motion of the cart and like the fact that there's images. Like, so I think that I was enjoying that a lot more. And then certainly when I was rereading it again last evening, then, um, I, I was well prepared. And so at this point I was all on board and, and, 
really enjoying the imagery of what's going on. And again, once you don't really pay attention or care who's coming on and off the stage other than, you know, Amelia kind of wandering around and being confused more than anything, um, I think it's a lot more enjoyable. That's a great observation because the the whole gimmick of the story, if we were to take story B seriously, <laughs> the gimmick of story B is that there's a character who's unfamiliar with this setting, who's been thrust into it. And so she's the reader surrogate, right? This is, you know, pretty standard trope. This is, you know, what the hobbits are in the the Lord of the Rings and in and, and the Hobbit for that matter. Uh, this is why so many uh, uh, variations then, later variations of uh, stories similar to the Lord of the Rings how, like to have young characters, you know, adolescents from small towns or just like farms so that they don't know anything about what's outside their village and the world can get explained to them uh, really can get explained to us, right? But that there's a sort of in-world, in-story reason for that. And and that is what Gaiman is, is doing here, though I hadn't really thought about it in those terms. That, that she gives us just this, you know, it, it allows him to obfuscate for us what is happening and just to layer on all this mood. And right before we depart this particular part of story B, um, I just love the image of, so there's this ooze where the servant had been and Amelia decides she's going to dip her fingertip into the noxious stuff. She licked her finger and she made a face. You would appear to be right, sir, whoever you are, she said. I would estimate that he has been dead for the better part of a hundred years. Just the idea that it's just like, oh, there's ooze where there was once a body. I'm going to A, stick my finger in it, B, taste it? And then see, from the taste of the ooze, I know a hundred years is the proper amount of time that this person would have died. It's just like, that's, there are many things that you should not do there. I, I think that this person would be happy to find themselves among the crew of um, the Nostromo or any number of other <laughs> um, uh, space opera kind of, or you know, space horror uh, vessels. Yeah, we so certainly we are living in a world now where even if you were not a germaphobe at the start of 2020. Uh, we are all germaphobes now. So this did strike me as totally disgusting. But yeah, also the logistics of how exactly do you develop an expertise in tasting goo to determine how long it's been dead? Like, what? how many times do you have to try this? How do you verify your results to know that you're on the right track? What precisely... Uh, about the sort of flavor profile indicates to you that it's a hundred years old and not one, you know, or six months. Uh, these are not details we are ever going to get. They are not details that matter, but wow, does it make me sh shiver and cringe? Do you think that part of the reason why she thought that Lord Falconmere seemed like kind of a creep was because he either was too interested or not interested enough in her vast experience of tasting things? I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I like to think that she was uh, working in London as some kind of uh, gothic CSI <laughs> sort of tech. Actually, gosh, I would read that series of books. I to someone needs to write that. I would totally read that. Well, uh, let's let's carry on with the the A story now. Back in the the, the real world of the writer, uh, there is a pretty young maid who has arrived at the house under mysterious circumstances only a few weeks ago. Uh, right now, in this scene, she's building a fire. When she's done, the, the writer stares into the fire because, you know, that's how you brood. And then someone else is there. It's his older brother, long thought dead. But how? It doesn't matter. But maybe he really was dead. But 
It doesn't matter, because in either case, no one would want to travel the paths that he has traveled. And anyway, more importantly, he's back to claim what is rightfully his. And at this, the the writer just matter-of-factly says that, yeah, well, obviously, you're the older brother, so all of this belongs to you, and if you can prove who you really are, we'll just give it back to you. So the writer here is just really not rising to the occasion of the plot that he finds himself in. But his brother is great because he doesn't care. He's going to elevate the situation further. He's not going to bother with lawyers. He claims the right of blood. And he takes down the two swords that hang above the fireplace. And now there's this big duel. And in the end, the the younger brother, our, our writer, mortally wounds the older brother. And then as the older brother dies, he gives a little speech uh, where he just says, well, you know, he didn't really want the house, didn't really want the title. What he wanted was peace. And now with his death, the family curse should finally be ended. Uh, though there is still the matter of the thing in the abyss, uh, the cellars, the rats, it follows. Uh, and that is his uh, his last <laughs> words. Those are his dying words, uh, jumble of phrases, with, uh, nothing to connect them. And uh, when this business then is over, the, the writer admits that, of course, this sort of thing happens all the time. But whenever he tries to put something realistic like this scene <laughs> in one of his stories, he ends up making a mockery of it. And I guess, right, that is the tone of the story B, the bold font story that we've been reading this mockery. But this is where really I think we get explicit on the page that the storyteller is not really in our world. He's actually in a sort of metafictional gothic world of his own. And, and maybe I was being a little bit obtuse, but this is this is the point at least where I had figured that out. And this really opened up the whole story to me where I finally understood kind of the, the mockery and the, 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 the jokes and the, the tone of story B. There's a lot of humor as his brother appears and they engage in a sword fight. And even the description of the sword fight is at times describing as if it's like a, a dance, a dainty, you know, um, a dainty minuet or court, a courtly and deliberate ritual, while at other times it seemed pure savagery. So, and they're, you know, they're going up and down the mezzanine and they're swinging from drapes and chandeliers and... Yeah, we had the backdrop then of, you know, starting the whole scene with the chambermaid and she has some mysterious past and she wants to know, will that be all? And he says, yes, no, yes, you may go, Ethel. And it's like, you're wondering at that point, like, is he going to uh, make a pass at her or is he know of her secret or, you know, what? Or does he just want to brood and complain? And it doesn't it doesn't matter. And, And so here you have a lot more. Their characters going in and out of frame, and largely you're caring about the writer, but there seems to be more kind of backstory, perhaps given to the other characters in story A than in story B, where really it just is Amelia, and then anyone else who appears won't be there very long. But it's it's all very much over the top, but also gives you a little bit more sense, I think, that there is a little bit wider world outside of you of the writer. Um, both stories are written from the third person perspective. Um, so an omniscient narrator, however, the narrator, you know, ha- has more to see in the real world than just the th- stuff that the, in story B, the writer has to say about what's going on around Amelia. So then moving forward back to story B, Outside the room, the ghoul lords howled with frustration and hunger. So we, we've moved ahead, and Amelia is now confronting ghoul lords in some cases, um, and is trying to remember what a woodcutter told her. 
the woodcutter, I, I like this description in which he, um, he, his words came back to her then in her time of need, as if he were standing close to her, his manly frame mere inches from her feminine curves, the very scent of his honest laboring body surrounding her <laughs> like the heaviest perfume. And she heard his words as if he were that moment whispering them in her ear. Yeah, that's priceless. Scent of his honest laboring body. I mean, it doesn't get better than that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, it it's funny because of just kind of the overtop, like, you know, melodrama of, you know, a, a romance story here. But it's also funny because the kind of commentary of, like, that is the way that the character in Story A would think to describe you know, an attractive, sweaty member of like, you know, the peasant class who is busy laboring away right outside of his mansion is just like. <laughs> right, though, clearly not actually a member of the peasant class, right? He says that he he was not always a woodcut, woodcutter, but uh, he doesn't give her the details of that. But he used right. to have a different destiny. So, you know, he's obviously himself a fallen aristocrat of, of some kind, which is another stock trope of, of gothic literature but she reminds he, he reminds her of the secret compartment that is in uh the old writing desk and so she eventually finds a button in it and there finds the compact and the compact apparently is this long deal that her family has going back generations with whatever is residing under the stairs and in the crypts um and apparently the ghouls are owed brides and that will satisfy their needs. At least maybe that's just what's necessary on tonight of all nights. <laughs> right. Yeah, this is uh, this is great here. And this is the Forbidden Brides, I guess, of the title. The Forbidden Brides of the Faceless Slaves. I guess we're in the secret house. And I guess this night of all nights is the night of dread desire. <laughs> I had, you know, whatever any of that actually really means. But here's the deal. Amelia says that she'll do it. She'll she'll get the, the brides for them. I mean, I don't know what the logistics of that are, but basically, I mean, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with the brides, but it is certainly either one of two things, or I guess maybe it could be both. So it's one of three things, but it is going to be a non-consensual relationship of some sort, or they're going to be eaten, or it might be both. But Amelia is fine. She's going to do this because, you know, this is the bargain that uh, her ancestors struck with uh, whatever this is that lives in the crypt, the the denizens of the crypt, maybe uh, we'll call them. There is a, a joke at the end here. It's a, it's a joke that does not work for me at all. It takes me really right out of the story. And this is uh, one of the ghouls asks if she'll throw in an order of bread rolls. This is, this is a type of humor that Gaiman uses sometimes. Uh, Joss Whedon uses it a lot. Also, J. Michael Straczynski. I just do not enjoy this type of joke, but I, I wonder if it worked better for you. No, I oftentimes I like this joke far more than you do, I think, Glenn, in Buffy and sometimes Angel and, you know, Joss Whedon type verse, and even when Neil does it sometimes. But yeah, it, it didn't work for me in this story. It was it was a bridge too far because I don't believe that in the high gothic pastiche quote unquote real world that the narrator in story a or the character in story a lives in. And he's trying to capture that, you know, the honesty of that in story B that, you know, the idea of little bread rolls doesn't seem, I mean, on the one hand, I guess it's trying to say that these things are commonplace, but it just, it doesn't work for me. I think some other joke, a, it's not necessary. You could probably just cut it. But B, there's probably another way to, to have thrown the, like, this is normal kind of thing other than little bread roll things. Because that feels like it's a wink to 
us as the audience, not to him and his fellow people. And he does say that he throws in jokes that aren't very funny. So maybe it should just be something that's more pertinent to, to him or something like. Yeah, that's a that's a great point, because what it's doing is is taking us out of the world of both the A story and the B story. Right. That I don't believe that you can get takeaway bread rolls in the ace the world of the a story right that's our world so that is why it, it sucked me totally out of the world of the story why i didn't think it functioned very well yeah it might have worked better if he was just like and throw in left-handed newts like for instance like because that is ridiculous but maybe that's ridiculous in a way that better fits what we believe the universe really is as this character perceives it Yes, right. An in-universe joke would have worked a lot better for me. But I will say for the record, I don't always hate this type of joke in, in Buffy and Angel. I don't always love the way Xander delivers those jokes. But uh, the character Andrew, who appears late in Buffy, uh, when he delivers these jokes, I always I always love it. Yeah, it can really break the tone in the setting. So, And humor oftentimes is the way that we kind of escape or try to process stuff um, <laughs> in our actual real life. Um, and so also it works in stories sometimes, but, uh, but here it's just, it, it immediately makes me think about going to a restaurant or being at a wedding or something where there's little, you know, rolls in a, in a basket. And it just, <laughs> it doesn't fit what I'm thinking of a Gothic pastiche. Again, I think something else would have worked there, which have also would have equally been maybe a not good joke, but would have been keeping in the theme of the story. Well, let's uh, let's do section seven now. We're we're back in the A story. The the writer is at his desk. He's struggling to write uh, the novel that he's writing, and which we have been reading as story B is insufferable. Uh, he throws down his pen. He starts to curse the whole thing. I mean, like literally curse it. Uh, when the the Raven, who has been sitting on a bust of the writer's great 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 grandfather, strikes up a conversation. Uh, Nothing unusual about this at all. Ravens often speak to people in this world. And what this one wants to know is if the writer actually enjoys writing realism, because he doesn't ever seem to be having fun while he's doing it. So maybe he should take up writing fantasy instead. And to this, the, the writer gives an impassioned defense of his project. He explains that what writers are for is to show people the world they live in, that what he is writing is literature and fantasy is not literature. All fantasy is, is esoteric dreams written by a minority for a minority. And then uh, the raven to this just says, nevermore. And then the writer thinks about it, decides to throw this current novel in the garbage, and he begins to think about a story that he could tell with some of the common tropes of fantasy literature. Uh, these are tropes we're all familiar with from fantasy literature, right? Things like cars and stockbrokers and commuters, uh, housewives and police and income tax and cheap restaurants. And so that, right, finally, that is the gag, right? Our boring, mundane world, the world that we live in, though it's been less boring and mundane of late, I guess, but our boring, mundane world is the stuff of fantasy in the writer's world. And this speech here, or maybe not the speech, but this, I don't know, this scene here, this seems very much to be the voice of Gaiman. He's kind of I don't know if mocking is right, but maybe trying to take to task people who think that fantasy is somehow not literature or that that speculative fiction is a lesser form of literature than realism. And I, I don't know that that's something that we really have to do anymore, but there was definitely a time, right, when speculative fiction writers were regarded as not real writers. And 
a lot of speculative fiction writers you, you internalize that, right? This this wounded a, a lot of them. This is something Gene Wolfe wrote about uh, a lot, especially in the, the 70s and 80s. Yeah, well, and I think this still is not for listeners of this podcast necessarily, and um, or any part of Clay Temple Media um, probably don't have this misconception. But I do think there still is a general enduring sense that that fantasy and science fiction and speculative fiction are not true art. And when they are, when when the, the things that are able to cross over and are considered that, then, you know, if you go to, you know, what bookstores still exist, you know, particularly even big chains, I remember being frustrated that the writings of Kurt Vonnegut would be in literature or fiction. But if I want to see, you know, the writings of Neil Gaiman, oftentimes, sometimes now I think you might find them in fiction, but before they would always only be in science fiction fantasy. The fact that science fiction fantasy has its own category as if that is, and you looked at, you know, how the things were marketed in that section and and the covers. um, And it, it very much was directed at, no, this is juvenile literature and, you know, if you have, you know, degrees and have studied things, then you're reading, you know, literature. And so it's just, you know, fairly drab looking covers of things. Um, but that's where you'd find your Kurt Vonnegut or even your um, Handmaid's Tale would be in the fiction section, but not in the, you know, speculative fiction section. I think that that's a kind of a problem in the way that kind of the snobbery that still, I think, does, you know, pervade segments of the literary world and the way society views these texts. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I had kind of even forgotten the uh, the dust up with uh, Ian McEwen sort of proclaiming that he was going to write a science fiction novel that wasn't about, uh, you know, the things science fiction novels are normally about, like spaceships and laser gun fights and uh, or laser sword fights or whatever and so on in which it became totally clear that he had never actually read a science fiction novel and didn't know that they were mostly uh, uh, about the things he was saying he was going to do to revolutionize the field people had literally been doing for over a hundred years so uh, I guess you know there there is still that out there I was thinking sort of the other way around uh, in fact maybe to I don't know, someone I kind of think of as in the same breath as Ian McEwen is uh, uh, Kazuo Ishiguro who has gone on to write some science fiction stories and He's a you know Nobel writer, and uh, thinking about uh, magical realism has gotten the the Nobel uh, recognition as as well. And also thinking about the extent to which Tolkien has been and Lewis have been welcomed into the Academy. Right, you can take college level classes on these writers now. So, and because this is really the thing that Gene Wolfe would complain about is that his writing was never going to be taken seriously by academics, which of course now is not true. Right? There are people who have written their PhD dissertations on Gene Wolfe. People are teaching college classes on Gene Wolfe now. But that is, uh, I think, you know, a massive improvement, a massive change from where we were when Gaiman wrote this. But there is still quite a bit of this. I guess what I was really thinking of, though, is the thing that has happened that I think felt more real for us in our youth when we would have been first reading Neil Gaiman in our adolescence was that uh, reading, being into speculative fiction is no longer just for nerds and geeks and dweebs, right? That the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Star Wars are huge, massive pop culture things, uh, that they are not esoteric stories by a minority for a minority, which I think is what we felt in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, I think some of the, there's a certain strange prestige which attaches itself to to major film blockbusters like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, though, because I think that there are still 
people who are acquaintances of mine who, if I, you know, if I talk about going to see a Marvel film, they might be excited and want to join. But if I talk about reading a Marvel comic book, they'll assume that I'm still kind of pursuing a childhood kind of pursuit. And it's like, it's literally the same story. (laughs) (laughs) Except for the budget is far more infinite in special effects in the printed, you know, comic. So. But I think things are, are better than they've they've been. But I think that still there's uh, – I think there will always be to some extent, unfortunately, kind of cultural snobbery in which we define, you know, what is the other. We define what is the in-group that we want to be part of or that we already are part of. And in order to define what that group is, we need to identify um, or others to exclude, which is kind of unfortunate. And, um, and it plays out in politics in other ways too. But – but yeah, I think that Neil very much here is kind of, you know, having fun with the and in kind of inverting kind of the, the trope and the the kind of malignant thought about what is real literature versus what is not. And then, you know, even trying to make a little bit of an argument, although I don't know that we're supposed to take this as too serious of an argument given who's giving it. But the Scrivener thinks it is escapism true, but it is not. But. Is it not the highest impulse in mankind, the urge toward freedom, the drive to escape? And I think there's something to be said for kind of escapism as having a value unto itself. But I think there's also something that that particular character doesn't understand, which is like, you know, science fiction fantasy are often used to explore concepts where the setting and maybe the plot might have some escapist elements, but some of the actual ideas that are being tackled are just as much, if not more realistic and human than you're going to encounter by reading about, you know, someone just, you know, dealing with something in a mundane sense. Well, this is the common charge that is leveled at speculative fiction is that it's escapist. And the underlying assumption there then, right, is that what books are for is to be didactic, that if a book is not teaching you something, something specific, something concrete, something tangible, something useful, then what's the point of reading it, this is definitely an attitude that I've encountered. I think we've all encountered people holding. And and I've encountered this attitude, I mean, from people I, I really respect who are, are very good uh, teachers, very good scholars, who will say things like, well, what's even the point of reading fiction, right? If you're going to read a book, shouldn't you be reading something that is real, something that is actually useful? Uh, but then, you know, these are people who are diehard sports fans. So they they know what amusement is. They know what, you know, appreciating the beauty of some kind of art form is, but don't seem to 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 think that, but, but somehow seem to hold books in some other type of category where if you're going to spend time with books, right, that it should only be for didactic purposes and not simply to derive pleasure from it, right? Deriving pleasure is something that books are not for. Uh, other things are for deriving pleasure, but not books, which is, that's a sad world. That's a sad worldview. I don't want to live in that. And I don't, and I'm glad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's also, it's a worldview that refutes the importance sometimes of allegory to even teach like moral lessons. Um, and it, it, it's weird sometimes given, you know, people's belief structures sometimes hinging a lot on texts that rely in part or in whole, in whole on kind of the utility of allegory. It's strange to, to kind of put those things next to each other. 
Yeah, and I don't, we don't need to pause here, although I'm tempted to, and like make the case for fiction, make the case <laughs> for, for fantasy fiction. But I will say one more thing, just thinking with my teacher hat on, is that there's all sorts of research now about what reading fiction does for us, uh, but especially what it does for kids uh, and has profound long-term effects. And the, the biggest thing, uh, at least to my mind, is that it teaches empathy, uh, besides, you know, improving things like vocabulary and comprehension for other types of reading. And, you know, even if you're just thinking in a utilitarian sense, improving, you know, SAT scores and GRE scores and LSAT scores, uh, and so on for, you know, getting a job in this, in this world. Uh, but that it's actually how we learn to be human. It's a huge component of how we learn to be human, which is, you know, why we need to always be reading to kids or uh, giving kids books and, uh, and, and so on. But I, I just said, I wasn't going to say all this and then, and then did, and but then that, was did. A, that was a but, small uh, percentage of what I wanted to say. But moving ahead. <laughs> yeah. So he's finally decided he's going to go for escapism and he's going to tell a story that is fiction and involves those tropes that you identified before. So we cut back to story B and story B has changed quite a bit. We still have, uh, Amelia. Uh, Earnshaw. Um, but she's no longer trying to worry about how she's mechanically going to get a number of brides and dinner rolls uh, to the ghoul lords living in her crypt basement of her family's ancestral house. Instead, um, she's slicing some bread and putting it in the toaster and reflecting on her relationship with her husband, George, who is sitting um, there next to her in the kitchen reading the newspaper. Right. This is, uh, you know, just a sort of quotidian existence. It's the start of the day for a middle-class suburban family somewhere in the, the middle of the 20th century. You know, she's just cooking breakfast for her husband, which she does every day. George is just there reading the newspaper. And, and when Amelia asks how he'd like his eggs, he says he doesn't care that he'll eat whatever she makes. She just stands there and cries because nothing matters. And right, this is Gaiman putting the mockery now on literary fiction. He's turning the tables on it. And I think he does a great job of it. This is a really awesome pastiche. Uh, there are some really funny bits here. Like this thing opens with this kind of inner monologue from Amelia. It's an inner monologue about white bread, about how much she loves white bread, even though it has no nutritional value, but she hasn't eaten white bread in a decade because, you know, it's bad for you. And one of the jobs you have as a housewife and whenever this is supposed to be the 1950s, or it might even be the 1980s, I suppose, you know, is to keep your figure, is to look good for your husband. And so you can't have the empty calories of white bread. And, you know, this thing just opens with just an inner monologue about white bread. This is what Gaiman thinks literary fiction is. It's monologues about white bread. It is. Uh, and also uh, wives who may despise their husbands um, because she thinks uh, to herself, and, and here we do have italics to give us and which it's bolded italics because it's in story B. So it's bolded. Um, but we have the italics for her inner thoughts, which um, whenever I think about italics and inner thoughts, I'm immediately brought back to Dune because ah, yes. I think half those books are the inner thoughts of characters the way Frank Herbert gave it to us. But uh, in which she's thinking though about her husband and thinks, I hate him. I hate him. It was like a song. I hate him for his toast and for his bald head and for the way he chases the office crumpet which is a weird anachronistic phrase that I think intentionally was used there by Neil, but um, girls barely out of school who laugh at him behind his back and for the way he ignores me whenever he doesn't want to be bothered with me. And for the way he says, what love? When I ask him a simple question as if he's long 
ago forgotten my name, as if he's forgotten that I even have a name. And then she immediately asks if he wants uh, his egg or his egg scrambled or boiled, and he responds, "What love?" There's a couple of things I kind of want to pull apart. Well, let's talk about the whole setting, uh, the whole passage, and then we can pull apart kind of the relationship between the Amelia Earnshaw environment here versus before. So, so she's still thinking about her environment, um, and it, it then cuts to explain the narrator that um, that her husband George. Uh, regards his wife with fond affection and would have been um, very surprised to learn of her hatred of him. Um, So it's kind of them not understanding each other and not really listening. And, you know, he tells her, you know, when she asks again to the scrambled or boiled eggs, he says, anyway, you like it, love. And he thinks he's probably being helpful. Um, He says it amiably. And it, it goes, it ends, the passage ends by saying, could not, for the life of him, as he told everyone in the office later that morning, understand why she simply stood there holding her slice of toast or why she started to cry. So here we have a husband and wife completely disconnected from each other. She hates him because of his inability to kind of understand her. Um, he doesn't understand her, but and talks about that with the people in the office. And it's kind of a... It's kind of a, you know, sad little bit of prose um, about these people's lives. Um, and in some ways, it's far, far more tragic than dealing with all of the death and ghouls and terribleness that we were having just on the edges and also in the forefront, I guess, of what Amelia was experiencing in the uh, nonfiction world, as it were, previously. <laughs> right. I, I assume that George here is labeled as George Earnshaw, but I, I was just envisioning if there were a visual adaptation of this. And and I don't know, maybe maybe there actually is a comic adaptation of this. There seems to be that seems to be happening to so many of his short stories now. But you know, or or a film that these would be the the same characters that we saw in the original B story that we were getting. And that this would be the the woodcutter with the you know the the scent of his his laboring body or whatever. Uh and you know now they're transported to this different environment where instead of being really awesome, really interesting, larger than life protagonists in a fantastical world, they're just mundane people in a mundane world. They're banal people in a banal world with banal problems that just make us as readers also depressed. Um, Though I will say that much like I wish that there had been an entire 200-page novel of the the B story, uh, the story B that we started with, I would read this book too. Whatever this is going to turn into, (laughs) I think this is gorgeously written. I'm actually compelled by these characters. I would like to see what's happening with their crumbling marriage. I'm curious about, you know, if we assume that this is the opening of the book or somewhere in the middle of chapter one anyway, what's going to be the incident that's going to you know, tear this world up in some way and force them to reckon with their marriage. I'm I'm hooked. I'll read this. Well, and I hadn't thought of George being, you know, if, if, if this was a play being depicted by the same person who is the woodcutter, I always kind of pictured that George maybe was more akin to the ghoul Lord and it's the brides that the ghouls, you know, were promised is in part what Amelia now is in this scenario where it's just kind of a tragic fate for her, where she's in a marriage that appears at least from her perspective in this particular passage to, 
to lack what she wants and that maybe the woodcutter is either how she remembers George being when they met or maybe the person who she thinks about um, when she wants to escape from thinking about George. Actually, I hadn't really thought about the way that the title of the story might apply to this version of story B, but Faceless Slaves is something that jumps out to me, right? That she is kind of, you know, a faceless servant to George Earnshaw. And in fact, we should, well, we should read this passage. That's, that's pretty great. Uh, George Earnshaw regarded his wife with fond affection and would have found her hatred of him astonishing. He thought of her in the same way and with the same emotions that he thought of anything which had been in the house for 10 years and still worked well. The television, for example, or the lawnmower. He thought it was love, right? So she's, you know, this and this whole business, whether he calls her love because he like, doesn't even remember that she has a name, it's, it's, that's faceless, right? And she's there to serve him the same way that the TV and the lawnmower are. Well, in the same way that if there's a compact between some, you know, mortal family and ancestral ghouls living in the crypt, they need brides, but just temporarily and for, you know, a period of time before the brides are, I don't know, eaten or die naturally, who knows, but they're kind of, they're maybe is not for their own kind of personhood and but just kind of utility of checking off the list and, you know, referring to the compact here as being maybe the compact being here, maybe the um, marriage vows or something like that, where it's just it's this piece of paper that's binding things in ways that maybe they would rather not still be bound. Right. And I, I could see that being the uh, the incident, the inciting incident that gets the story going here, right? Her decision uh, that she reaches on this day of all days while he's at work, uh, that uh, maybe she wants a, wants a divorce, right? And, and if this is the 50s or 60s or even the 80s, right, that would be a bit, uh, you know, of a, uh, unconventional, a bit, bit shocking, if not necessarily scandalous. And yeah, well, I, as I said, I would, I would read that story. And, and I think when I got to this passage... Um, section eight i i can't tell because there's so much being conveyed and there's a lot of detail and there's a lot of you know you know fairly good neil gaiman writing which means really good writing by anyone else's standards that kind of really kind of grabs you but it feels like there's less detail per inch of text than there was previously in this section so i felt like even though the story is about someone who kind of is dealing with a claustrophobic type environment, I almost felt like I could breathe more freely. And I don't know if it's because it's dealing with a scenario where I don't have to worry about like how the velvet curtains are, you know, shrugging in the forked tongue of the lightning, (laughs) or if it's just that like there's less being packed into this because we're focusing more on minute details about two pieces of toast, one that does come out of the toaster and the other one that rips and, you know, the detail of mentioning just very simple objects without a lot of descriptors. It's not the television and the lawnmower. We think, uh, you know, it's presented to us, as you said, about things that work well, but there's not adjectives attached, uh, adjectives attached to either the description of the television lawnmower. Other than that, it's not the, you know, luxurious lawnmower or the, you know, useful lawnmower, the way that I feel that, I'd be dealing a lot more with epithets and stuff in the prior text, like something out of um, uh, Homer. 
one of the things we can do in comparing the two different versions of story B here are to look at what needs to be built, right? What's the world? What's the setting? What's the mood that needs to be constructed by the writer? So in the the Gothic pastiche, it is the external world, right? It's where are the characters? What does that look like, right? What are, what are, what is all what are what's the sensory input of that, and then also what are all of the the social relationships, and in the fantasy and in, and in the the and in the pastiche of what for us would be literary fiction, none of that has to be built up because we know what a suburban home's kitchen looks like, right? We've experienced that, or we've at least seen it on TV enough times to be able to envision that. What is being built, the the setting, the mood, and even the the, the, the tone and world, What it, all of that is internal to the characters, right? And so it's a totally different type of description. I would suggest that the passage here in this literary fiction pastiche to compare to some of the, the real purpleness of the gothic fiction pastiche is this internal monologue about white bread, right? That strikes us as over the top and kind of ridiculous that, you know, I do have internal monologues. Maybe most of us do, I guess. I do some musings from time to time, maybe especially in the morning if I haven't had any coffee yet. But it's definitely not quite this purple right? Even when I am in a bad mood, even when I am feeling ennui and wondering how my life has led to this moment and maybe isn't there a better life somewhere that I would rather be living, uh, my internal monologues don't sound like this, right? So I think that's where Gaiman is is doing the same thing, but just applying it to a different component of the story. It's the interiority versus the, or the interior world versus the exterior world. I do definitely wish that we had short novels, 150, 200 page novels of both of these story Bs here, uh, and they could be printed together uh, sort of in this way that books used to be, where you would you would print two books in one cover to save printing costs. And um, you could one half of the book, one story in the book would be oriented up, down, one way, and then you'd flip it over and have to like really, you know, turn it, turn it top to bottom in order to read the other book. Uh, that's a, a gimmick I would love to see he came and do with these stories. I mean, there are other books I might like to see him write before this, but uh, I would love this. Maybe, the, And maybe there's a copy of this in the library in the Dreaming somewhere. I mean, there, there has to be, right? Um, <laughs> yes, because I've just, Im- I just imagined it. That's just, how it You works. just dreamed yeah. of it, so it's it's there. Uh, we just need Lucien to find it for us. So then we cut back for the final time to story A, in which the writer is engrossed in what he is doing. And we're told his face was strangely content and a smile flickered between his eyes and his lips. He was wrapped. So, you know, finally he's content and is happy with what he is doing and is focused on it and not focused on all of the cacophonous kind of nightmare fodder. If it were ever present around him, (laughs) Um, but we cut away to elsewhere in the house in which, um, Tomes, um, the butler, is talking to Ethel, the chambermaid, 
Right, but she's she's not really a chambermaid, right? She's the chambermaid who isn't really a chambermaid, and he's about to reveal some sort of secrets, and he's making her swear. Uh, you know, this is this is classic stuff. This really felt sort of like uh, Wilkie Collins's the the Moonstone to me. Though maybe that's just because uh, much of that is narrated by the butler and does have to do with secrets. And um, I don't know. There is a chambermaid, I think, at the core of that. It's been actually a while since I've read that book, though. I love that book. But yeah, this is a great way to to end, right? Because he zooms back out. Game and zooms back out to the world of story A to show us that even though the writer is now having a blast writing this fantasy fiction that looks like literary fiction to to us, uh, the world around him, the real world that he lives in is still this gothic world world. I love the way that this story ends. I really love this story in in general. But now that we're at the end, Brent, I, I want to ask, what did you think of this story? We did you know, preface a little bit of this at the top of the show. When I quickly read it, before we were talking about Into the Night, the Salmon issue where the, the, the title appears as part of uh, Zelda's Dream, I, um, I wasn't in the right mood for it. I think I kind of got the gist of it and enjoyed it well enough by the end, but I was kind of annoyed for the first few pages just because of how over the top it was. And it just, it, it, it intentionally read to me like a better produced version of what you'd expect, like a, you know, a teenager who's just kind of trying to throw in as many tropes as possible and, you know, add story upon story. It just, it, it annoyed me. Um, and it, is a completely different tone from where you're at when you're reading into the night and where you're at in that volume of Sandman. Um, but having reapproached it last evening, fully knowing what it was and not having it juxtaposed against something that is far more serious. I think I read it after watching, um, what we do in the shadows. I was far more ready for just like, let me just embrace the chaos and the humor and the humor in many cases is very thin, but, it's supposed to be very thin. And so, you know, kind of, again, slapstick is what comes to mind. So if I imagine that the Marx brothers are portraying most of these characters, um, then it, it fits. And so it, it really did work for me. I think it probably could have been a little shorter, which is a weird thing to say about a story that's fewer than 12 pages, I guess. I mean, honestly, probably could have been eight and gotten the gist across. Well, I absolutely loved this story. I, I, I do agree that it probably could have been shorter, probably could have been two sections shorter. We could have cut one section out of the out of story A and probably one out of story B, though I, I wouldn't want to pick which one of those to, to go because I did like every scene in this story. And, you know, maybe in, in some ways I am kind of the target audience for, for this, e- even though even though this is a speculative fiction podcast network, that's what we do here. If, if someone were to really press me to sort of rank my favorite novels of all time, uh, Jane Eyre would actually be near the top of my list. Uh, and in fact, maybe even The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins might be near the top of my list ahead of some of the things that we do here on the network. I love 19th century fiction. I love 19th century prose and especially gothic prose. I mean, this is one of the things we do over on Elder Sign. We do a lot of 19th century gothic stuff over there. 
I always am raving about it. Well, almost always. There have been a couple couple stinkers, but for the most part, I'm always raving about it. So I think in some sense, I was I am kind of a target audience for this story to really get uh, a kick out of this, both in terms of uh, enjoying the prose, right, where he's mimicking that style, uh, but then also the fact that he's playing with all of the, the, the tropes, all of the conventions of that genre. In fact, I'll say one thing that's maybe looking ahead a little bit, which uh, because we have already recorded our our episode that we're airing next, the episode on Only the End of the World Again, which we did because that was something that was commissioned by a Patreon supporter. So when that happens, we record the episodes right away and get them to the person who has uh, commissioned it. And then we release it whenever it's a good time to do that on the main show, which is to say we don't interrupt our Sandman coverage to do that. Uh, so we're airing that next. But the the Patreon supporter who did commission that episode has heard it already and has chimed in on our conversation there and and said something that I heartily agreed with, or at least that resonated with me because it's my feeling as well, which is said that he enjoys the game and stories. Uh, The the stories by Gaiman that he enjoys the most are the stories where the main character is actually the genre that he's working in. And I think that that is true for me as well, that that is where I also enjoy Neil Gaiman the most. And this is a story like that, right? The main character of this story is gothic stories, right? It's the genre of gothic literature is the main character in this story. And so that really works for me. Yeah. I mean, I think both of us would recommend this story to almost anyone with the caveat of go in with the right mood, which is just that you want something that is at times fairly dense, but um, in terms of imagery, but also take it light, which I think is, it's weird to kind of go into a story initially thinking that in terms of, I'm going to deal with a lot of dense imagery, but I should deal with it in a very kind of light and airy way. And particularly when it's gothic horror to be like, no, no, this gothic horror, I need to be very light in area as I approach it. Um, but, <laughs> but I think it works. And I think that that combination of things is a lot of fun if you're in the mood for it. And so I think it's a hard thing. You don't want to give away anything to anyone, but you also, it's best if you're a little prepared for it. So it almost needs a little um, trigger warning on the top of it. <laughs> And this is a story that, although you know it's now been printed and and sold, uh, you and I have both enjoyed it. It was a trunk story for a long time, and that's what he writes about in the introduction to Fragile Things: is uh, that it he'd shown it to a handful of editors, and uh, they all panned it. I mean, they really told him it was a, a a total garbage story. He does say that maybe there were some bits of it that were not particularly well written when he took it out of the trunk to revise it to send it off to this uh, collection called Gothic with an exclamation point at the end. And the story definitely, I, I didn't look to see what that collection was, though maybe that's something we should we should get our hands on. That might be fun to do. <laughs> but I could see this story being kind of the funny pastiche story in a collection that is filled with otherwise serious sort of engagements with, uh, uh, or straight-faced maybe, engagements with Gothic literature, that this would be the story that you put at the end or, or maybe in the middle uh, to, to add some levity to the whole the whole project. Yeah, so um, he mentions that he shared this with a couple editors back in the day before he put it in the trunk, and he got kind of some mixed responses, but generally not very good. I also found um, a discussion of, uh, as with many of Neil Gaiman's short stories, um, which we've talked about in a couple other instances, this short story was turned into, um, did have comic panels added to it to turn into a comic. Um, I don't actually have it, but Dark Horse did put out a 
copy of Forbidden Brides of the Faceless Sleeves, uh, Faceless Slaves in the Secret House of the Night of Dread Desire, with art by um, Shane Oakley. And I found a review of that online from a site called pixelatedgeek.com uh, back from 2017, um, in which uh, I encourage people to take a look at the review if they're interested maybe at picking up that volume. Um, it sounds like, uh, based on the review, I'm probably going to go back and try to pick up that volume because it sounds like the art does a great job conveying a lot of the imagery associated with the story. Was that sold as a, a standalone or was it packaged with other stories? Nope. It was sold as a standalone much as uh, they've done with um, it's only the end of only the end of the world again and some of the other things. So, Oh, fantastic. I mean, I mean, at some point, right, as we are sort of accruing short stories in our breaks between volumes of the Sandman and, and you know, eventually between uh, novels or other comics that we're, we're reading, I think it would be good to uh, to go look at the adaptations, do an episode where we look at the comic adaptations of prose stories like this that we've covered. I don't know, we could probably do, you know, two or three in a single episode. I think that would be a lot of fun. Uh, that'll be something that happens in, you know, 2024, I guess, something like that when we've accrued several of them. But anyways, uh, in that uh, article at the very end, he includes a quote from Neil in which Neil was doing a reading of the short story at uh, some bookstore in Berkeley. It doesn't say particularly which one, but the quote, which kind of mirrors what is discussed in Fragile Things, but it, it's a little it's a little different um, and it's kind of funny. So I'll share it here. It was uh, Neil said, and it was printed and it won a Locus Award for best story of the year which it did in 2005, um, as an aside, which I suppose if I'd been mean and cruel and vindictive, I would have actually hunted down one of the people who told me not to publish it and said, just won a Locus Award. But instead, I think I learned a very valuable lesson about listening to other people, which is not worth the effort. Ha, no, different people like different things. So, which I think that, uh, both of those lessons sometimes are maybe good. Um, <laughs> occasionally, it is not worth the effort to listen to other people. Um, oftentimes, though, it is. And you should just take it as different people will like different things, which I think if anyone read this story and did not like it, um, I would say uh, either different people like different things or different people like different things depending on when they read it. Maybe give it another shot if you thought you might like it at all. Yeah. Or, you know, flip the page, read the next story. I mean, this is always the case with short story selections. You're not going to love every single story. Uh, this is why Gene Wolfe always says you should not read them like a novel. Don't read them back to back. Read one, put the book down, come back a few months later, uh, read another one, right? Don't uh, treat each story, give each story its its due. Don't try to don't try to rush through the thing like it's a like it's a novel because you'll have trouble kind of switching those moods and those tones. Well, I think now that we have delved into some of the, the meta commentary that uh, Gaiman has said about this story, and we're talking about general advice for reading short story collections, uh, I think we have, uh, we've done this one. I think that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And please head on over to the Clay Temple forums or our subreddit and let us know what you thought of Forbidden Brides of the Faceless Slaves in the Secret House of the Night of Dread Desire, particularly on this day of all days. <laughs> I just cannot hear that title without just, just grinning and, and chuckling a little bit. Well, we're going to be back next week with an extra episode. As we said, this is one that was commissioned by one of our Patreon supporters, which is why it's an extra episode. And that is the story, Only the End of the World Again. You can find that in the collection Smoke and Mirrors. And if you would like to join us on Patreon so that you can get discounts on commissioning bonus episodes of your own uh, and also, uh, and maybe especially, help us reach our new goal of doing a bonus series on At the Mountains of Madness by H.P. Lovecraft 
craft, uh, please do check us out on patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. But until next time, pleasant dreams. <laughs>